Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note Agnes Drury, Charlotte Mason's trusted colleague, was the Inspector of Nature Notebooks at the House of Education from 1939 until her death in 1958. As early as 1913, she wrote an article in the Parents' Review on Nature Study. Then, in 1941, she wrote her magnificent manual on how to keep a nature notebook. Finally, in 1952, she again returned to the pages of the Parents' Review to discuss nature notebooks. What had changed in practice since her first Nature Study article from 39 years before? The structure, content, and form of nature notebooks was still the same. In fact, she wrote that the wealth of beautifully illustrated nature books now published does not invalidate our nature notebooks. Drury's charming article from 1952 presents us with a guide for nature notebooks that is at once modern and classic, scientific and poetic. Please enjoy the anecdotes and guidelines from Miss Drury, and may they inspire you to keep up the tradition in the present day. Nature Notebooks by A. C. Drury, C.M.C. In her essay Towards a Philosophy of Education, 1922, Charlotte Mason wrote, The nature notebooks which originated in the parents' union school have recommended themselves pretty widely as traveling companions and life records, wherein the finds of every season, bird or flower, fungus or moss, are sketched and described somewhat in the manner of Gilbert White. The nature notebook is very Catholic and finds room for the stars in their courses and for, say, the fossil anemone found on the beach at Whitby. Certainly, these notebooks do a good deal to bring science within the range of common thought and experience. The students' nature notebooks began early in 1893 when a House of Education Natural History Club, led by Miss M. L. Hodgson, was started. One student of that year is known to have continued her book through years in India and at home until the present day. Under the inspiration they felt at the college, others have done intensive studies in Austria, Italy, Brazil, East, South, or West Africa, as well as at home. My first summer at college was a very hot one, and the flow of the Scandale Beck was reduced to isolated pools in which Miss Hodgson showed us caddisworms and stonefly larvae. Mr. Herbert Geldart inspected the nature notebooks from 1893 to 1901, and then began Reverend A. Thornley's association with the House of Education's nature study, which continued for 35 years. He judged the notebooks generously, and when Mrs. Thornley added her comments on the quality of the brushwork, it helped us very much. But it was the two or three days walk each summer term, during which Mr. Thornley accepted and named every sort of specimen we collected, which taught the students and their teachers what it was to study nature out of doors. The after hours devoted to painting what had been brought home, 
and to consulting Mr. Thornley's classified lists of the insects he had caught for us were very precious. This was the material for science. Notes on these walks might be illustrated in the margin in after years when the mosses, for example, were better known. Conversely, it is delightful when something not known has been painted to find the name of it unexpectedly years after. Two instances have come my way recently. There was a charming little lichen allied to the cup mosses which looked like tiny pink toadstools on green ground. Ten years after it was painted, a figure and the name Beomyces roseus were found in a new handbook on British lichens. The other painting was of a spider's nest on a delicate herb found in a wood in February 1932. A few notes had been written beside it. The exact description and the name Agrosia were given last December in a new book called Stand and Stare by Murray and Newman. Many a student visiting France or Switzerland has painted as many of the flowers and insects as she could and obtained the names afterwards. Two badgers have been tracked in the snow this winter into a thicket of rhododendrons, reminding me of a lecture on tracking from Professor Ernest Thompson Sutton in 1909, who gave us a second impromptu lecture in the college. For whenever Miss Mason had a visit from an expert, she invited him to benefit her students. The Reverend A. Tuckwell founded a botanical garden in 1901, which was maintained until the First World War. Valuable advice was given by Miss Sophia Arnett, whose beautiful botanical paintings are now in the Arnett Library of Ambleside. The Honorable Mrs. Franklin brought some of Miss White's beautiful paintings of toadstools to show us, and we found, by degrees, quite a good fungus flora in the college grounds, with from 30 to 40 species reoccurring in the same spots. It remains to be seen whether the motor mower and the felling of beaches have altered that. Miss Gertrude Bell was familiar with the rare Lake District flowers and those on the highest fells partly through her father's constant association with scientists who came to explore the neighborhood. He had accompanied one of these, Professor J.E. Marr, to the places on the south side of Wasfell where fossils were exposed. It was not too far for us to visit on a half-holiday. The purple saxifrage, too, could be reached in its season on half a holiday. The opportunities for searching the higher fells or the surrounding limestones or the seaside came at half term and prepared students to carry on in their observations in other localities during the vacations. It is not long since good studies were done on the seashore in Wales and in northwest Ireland during the Christmas holidays. It has become a custom to visit the bird sanctuary of the Cumberland coast when the seabirds are nesting and much enthusiasm has been shown as a result. Miss Kitching, whose authorities were Miss Louisa Arnott and Mr. Arthur Astley, has always shared her love of birds with the students and, of course, there are nesting boxes for the pied flycatcher at the college. 
Waterhead marshes are a regular station for migrating birds, and some of them nest there. Ex-students who have helped to interest their successors in watching birds are too numerous to mention. Others, perhaps returning for a refresher course, have passed on their special hobbies, as Miss M. Owen did with her great interest in mosses and liverworts. A good summary of local knowledge is a map such as Miss Kitching has made of the places where migrants and rare birds have been seen. Other summaries are lists kept on squared paper at the end of the nature notebook with a column for every month. A bird list thus shows which birds are native and which are migrants or winter visitors and how long they stay. If two lines or more are allowed for each name, successive years can be compared. Any flower list, such as a table, shows the earliest date at which the stamens are showing and to check the list on the first of each month indicates how long each plant flowers. It is obvious that nature notebooks were inseparable from nature walks, and they also involved the study of books and classification. A complete lesson on ferns or grasses, for example, might be given in the garden, but lectures on plants and animals, geology and astronomy, illustrated by specimens from museum or countryside, supplemented the out-of-door discoveries and also suggested what might be sought for. Silver fishes might generally be found among stocks of cardboard to start the course on insects. Quite likely, a senior monitress may remember helping me to catch a cricket on the old kitchen hearth for the next day's lecture. Present students have found sea gooseberries at Orneside, and one has painted a sea squirt. The lectures were also intended to help the student to use the books set on the parents' union school programs. Star maps in the nature notebooks can show which constellations have been recognized or perhaps give the position of a planet in a familiar group of stars. In February 1916, four planets could be seen above the horizon at one time, and I remember that Miss Mason came into the veranda at 7 p.m. to look at them with us. The college front, 220 feet above sea level, is a good observatory for the southern sky when weather permits. From the grounds at the back, it is fascinating to watch the northern stars over Fairfield revolving from night to morning and from night to night. The aurora borealis has been seen there during the last two winters. Through the college telescope, we saw comets from time to time, or Jupiter's moons and Saturn's rings, or the moon's craters. On 29th June 1929, we made an expedition as a body to Bowdoin Moor in Yorkshire to see the total eclipse of the sun. It was a most memorable event. Mr. Thornley set great store by quotations from the poets inserted in the nature notebooks. It is a good way to indicate feeling for the beauty we see by quoting from great poetry, such as Wordsworth's, which become familiar to dwellers among the lakes. There are also lovely prose passages in Ruskin, for example, or W. H. Hudson, 
as a recent paper in the Parents' Review on how to enjoy wildflowers has shown. The wealth of beautifully illustrated nature books now published does not invalidate our nature notebooks. That we have them, as Miss Mason describes them in the passage I begin with, is her gift to us, and we know that nothing can be substituted for the value and pleasure of knowing nature at first hand. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.